0: Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hello, Don. J.J., I've got a question for you. Go. What do you think would happen to a society Mm -hmm. if it just dropped all its rules? Ooh, it would be like Lord of the Flies. (laughs) (laughs) The thing about Lord of the Flies, though, is that they were kids. Uh Uh-huh. And so you actually kind of wonder... What would happen? I yeah. mean, what would happen if there was no property law? Yeah. What would happen if there was no law enforcement period? I feel like we would all become kids, like it would descend into chaos. It might. <laughs> and it and then it, you got to wonder, it might not. I'm really curious about this. Yeah. Anyway, today's guest is Kevin Cruz and he talked his book is called Great Leaders Have No Rules. Yeah. And we talk about some of the ideas. Really what he's getting at is innovation. He's getting at this idea of just rethink the way things have been done. Yeah. And you some know, rules so you so have some, for no reason. Yeah, and, and really like you can break some of these rules and create different rules, you know. Yeah. You know, it's kind of metaphorical in what he's saying. It doesn't actually mean there are no rules. There are rules. no rules. <laughs> but it actually brought me back to my time at Reed College. Yeah. So I spent the late part of my twenties at Reed College mm-hmm. auditing classes. And Reed mm-hmm. College is in Portland, Oregon has the distinction of being the average IQ at Reed at the time I was there was two points above genius. Okay. So these are really smart kids. And what was interesting is there are only three rules at Reed College. What are they? Don't hurt yourself, don't hurt others, and don't cheat. Interesting. That's it. There's no other rules. And here's the thing about those three rules. They cannot be enforced by leadership. None of the governing principles enforce the rules. Interesting. The rules are enforced by students on students. So there's a... Some sort of council, I can't remember what it was called, but that enforces these rules. So and yeah. I may be butchering it. Some Reedies may write in, that's yeah, not exactly <laughs> and that's like not how t- it works, yeah. but it's pretty close to how it works. Yeah. And because of that, there's a lot of kind of crazy stuff that happens at Reed, but yeah. I think when you have kids who are that intelligent- Yeah. There's not like frat parties. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking (laughs) about, in fact, the only nuclear reactor in the state of Oregon is on the campus at Reed. (laughs) Really? It's on the campus of of a school that has no rules. Yeah. It's wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) And the thing I remember about Reed was, and I was there Probably four years. I mean, it took Hume 110 there. It was just an incredibly peaceful. You would have never, ever, ever known that there were no rules. Well, there were rules. They were just very
1: broad. Well, three. Yeah, the three that are very broad. And I think that's part of what he's getting at today is that a lot of times we think we have to have these really tight, like black and white kind of rules yeah. that define everything. And ultimately what that does is it really hinders innovation and doesn't allow yeah, people to that, think for
0: themselves. Right. It's that relationship between control and creativity. Yep. And you know one of the things that's really frustrated me as we've at this as this company has grown is every year we just add on 10 12 more rules. In fact, we're yeah. hiring a human <laughs> resources company to come in and train us on hiring and firing and how to do this and it's all based on future litigation. It's all based on the fact that you could be sued. <laughs> You know, So when you're hiring somebody, you can't ask how old they are. You can't ask their sexual orientation. You can't ask these kinds of things. Yeah. It's not that I don't think rules are important. Yeah, I wish that we could allow more people to think. Yeah. Actually, you've done this so many times. I go to Europe. Betsy and I were in Norway. Mm-hmm. We were in Bergen, Norway. We rented segways. We do things when we're overseas that we would never do here because we don't want to be, we're, we're fine being dorks over there. Yeah. It's like, let's rent segways. We would never do that in New York. We did. Yeah. We rented segways. And I'm taking my segway along a cliff with well, a ton of people around this castle. And the cliff, you can just fall off the cliff and uh-huh. die. And there's no signs, there's no fence, there's no nothing. And, Betsy was like, that's crazy. And I go, that's because this is a country where people don't sue each other. Because if you fall off the cliff, the person who owns the establishment just goes, well, you're a moron. Yeah. It's a cliff. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. I, I didn't think
1: I needed a rule to keep you from jumping off the cliff. <laughs> that's exactly yeah. it.
0: I remember when, you know, the heartbreaking tragedy in Notre Dame burned yeah. and we all saw it on the news and that's and I've been there recently. And we actually have a friend who's on the committee to rebuild Notre Dame. Yeah. And so it was kind of hard for us to watch and super painful. And, you know, the American response was fascinating. The American response was, who's responsible? We're going to get them, throw them in jail. Who did this? The French response, literally, as they're interviewing people in France, was, oh, "What does this mean? You know, Notre Dame has been here for four hundred years. What does this mean?" Like they don't even care <laughs> how it happened. They're just they're not like this massive rule-oriented yeah. country, right? Yeah. They're not like, and really, rules are just about authoritarianism. It's about who gets to control who and how can we control people and make them do what we want to do rather than trust them to basically use their brains. You know, there's got to be a dance with rules. Yeah. And I probably lean a little more libertarian in the aspect of like, I just think we have way too many rules in this country. So this is an interesting topic, especially as we try to scale an organization. And uh, I love Kevin's perspective on it. You a rule guy or a non-rule guy? I'm a non-rule guy. Non-rule guy. Yeah. And then when you have to obey them, you know, whatever you like.
1: I want people to think about what they're doing versus like tell them what to do kind of thing. So there are moments you need that for clarity purposes to give people some boundaries. But kind of like I like a really big box and then let people play within a giant box versus like making a whole bunch of little boxes.
0: I like general rules like don't hurt anybody in traffic as opposed to I can't pass somebody in the bike lane with my scooter in a school zone.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> like that rule, I'm like, that's a dumb rule. There's nobody in this. There's nobody in the school zone. It's not a school day. I'm just thinking hypothetically. Yes,
1: hypothetically, just throwing something random. Because I have out a there. cousin yeah. who
0: rides a scooter. Yeah. Asking for a friend. <laughs> Asking for a friend. Yeah. Anyway, today it's about the relationship between rules and creativity and chaos and how far is too far in creating rules. You're gonna love this conversation with Kevin Cruz. Kevin Cruz, good to talk to you.
2: Great to talk to you. I think the last time we spoke, one of my big memories is that you had a very friendly dog that was fighting for your attention.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're recording now in the treehouse at the office. It's called the treehouse. It's the attic. Lucy is not here, but we are overrun with dogs. We have a dog intern program, and uh, it's working out great. Uh, But I'm really glad to talk to you again. You've been busy since the last time we talked. And today's interview is going to be pretty darn disruptive. I mean, your new book, Great Leaders Have No Rules, talks about the fact that you should not have an open-door policy. You should absolutely play favorites at work, and you are probably going to be replaced by a robot. (laughs) (laughs) I do think that's going (laughs) to (laughs) happen. Well, far from doomsday scenario, you're basically helping us in this day and age lead, and we're going to explain everything that we just talked about. But I mean, this is really good stuff, and leadership has changed dramatically from sort of top down authoritarianism. To much more of a communal aspect, I think you would agree. People are still looking for an authority figure and somebody who is willing to take responsibility. But you've got some different tactics here. For would you say that this is mostly about managing millennials, or is this just a new evolution of human beings that we need to understand how we're really wired?
2: That's a great point. Like leadership has changed in a lot of ways. So the multiple you know generations at work is one of them. But it also just has to do with the always on, 24/7 global nature. Yeah. I mean the volatility. It's just a very different world today leading at work than it was even, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. But millennials is a big variable, that's for sure.
0: Okay, let's just dive right into it, because I want to get through, you've got six or seven things that we can talk about. On page 30 of your book, you say, employees aren't the only ones harmed by traditional open-door policies. In fact, it's team leaders and executives who reap the most adverse effects. As you might imagine, the open-door policy makes for a productivity nightmare. Various research studies indicate the typical office worker is interrupted 50 to 60 times per day, and the average time between interruptions is about three minutes. You basically open the book, page 30, saying, close your freaking door.
2: Yeah, that's right. You know, these days, these interruptions, a lot of modern workers, we don't have physical doors anymore. You know, it might be that you're wearing your headphones in the open office environment and someone's tapping you on the shoulder or maybe you're working in the treehouse, but someone's hitting you with a slack buzz every three minutes. So the proverbial open door, I mean, we're being interrupted more than ever before. And so the obvious first problem is just for all of us trying to do deep work, strategic thinking, creative thinking, you can't do it when there's constantly interrupted and, and getting that f- sort of flow state interrupted. Beyond that, I was shocked to discover that it's also harmful to your individual team members because it's a passive communication policy. Research suggests that half of the people on your team in your company will never come through the open door. You know, they're afraid to ask the dumb question or afraid that they're interrupting you at a time when it's not good for yeah. you.
0: And let's face it, open door policy sounds great on paper, makes you look really open as a boss, but most of you hate it. And and if you don't hate it, you're somebody, I'm going to be really judgmental here, but you're somebody who just loves distractions and you want to go around and talk to everybody anyway. And Exactly right. You're
2: social, you're an extrovert. You're- and
0: Which is your superpower. That's a superpower for you, but it's got a downside for you and most of us, a big-time downside.
2: Yeah, definitely.
0: Do you also recommend, because here's what I do. I block out all day Monday, half the day Tuesday the morning, and half the day Wednesday to do what I call moneymaker work. And these are the most important things I've got to get done, which is writing. And then I schedule meetings elsewhere. Do you recommend sort of blocking out focus tasks? Well, we'll get into that in a second. Is that part of the don't have an open door policy? Well, yeah, yeah.
2: I like the way you do it. I call it, mine is Mondays are for meetings. I actually start my week with meetings. Yeah. Yours I would call moneymaker Mondays. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the triple M. First of all, I think if you can time theme your days or days and a half, I think that's a great productivity strategy. I say, you know, close your door, open your calendar, and by opening the calendar mean, you know, schedule meetings. People people. can get in to see you. Yeah. Let people, you know, schedule time to see you and or schedule office hours to each their own for myself. Like I try to block off until noon of every single day for my deep work. Usually it's writing or something like that. And then the afternoon I'll do calls, I'll do meetings or got a minutes. Yeah, We don't all have to be purists. I mean, if the building's burning down, I want someone to tap on my door (laughs) and say, Hey, got a minute. There's a fire. Right. But In general, like my team knows, okay, if we're gonna all look for availability for a meeting, we're gonna look in the afternoons first because deep work happens in the morning when we're cognitively at our best, and then the interruptions happen in the afternoon when you know our energy's more uh,
0: attuned for interruptions. Well, the open door is not the main thing that's distracting us, and I think we all know what it is. It's that phone. You say, turn it off. I couldn't agree more. From your perspective, what is the distraction of a phone? I recently had a wonderful experience where I went through and I turned off most of my notifications. Yes. New York Times, U.S. News, The Economist. You know, I can catch up to that as I'm falling asleep at night or when I wake up in the morning. But it's amazing how, you know, I'll be working on something and the New York Times will say Trump just tweeted – a picture of himself shaving fifty-two and <laughs> and times. That was yesterday. Fifty-two times or whatever, <laughs> and I'm and I'm kind of like you know I get caught up in it, and then I'm just like man, I'm distracted now. It isn't just people trying to distract us; it's this phone making us feel like everything is urgent when very little that has anything to do with our own goals. What's going on in our brain when our smartphone is always on? The research shows that. Every
2: time that phone buzzes, it's like pulling the handle, you know, on a slot machine. We get a little dopamine burst. We're grabbing for that phone to see if it's something good. And most of the times it isn't good. Other times it's a funny, you know, cat meme or a joke or even something work-related that's gonna make us feel productive, like my boss asks a question. But all of those things are another form of, you know, interrupting your priorities, your deep work. And so it's not that I'm anti-phone all the time. I say, you know, Process the phone, process your emails, process your messages when you want to, not when someone else wants you. Don't be Pavlov's dog. Yeah, grabbing it, you know, you know, all throughout the day, minute after minute. And I always get pushback from the sales folks, especially saying, "Well, I'm in sales. I got to respond to things right away. You know, I've got to check it every time." I say, listen, you know, whether like for myself, I try to process three times a day, morning, noon and night before, you know, if you're in sales and you really feel that way, make it once an hour, once every 30 minutes, whatever it is. But when you're not processing, have those notifications off, have the phone shut off. And they say, even if it's in eyesight, It's burning up some brain cycles to not think about that phone, not grabbing it. So they say, you know, put it on airplane mode, stick it in your drawer, stick it in your purse, whatever it is to just get it away from you. Yeah. I'm so tired of this thing.
0: <laughs> really, I just I just I leave think it at the home.
2: Pendulum swinging back. I mean, we're getting burnt out on Instagram. We're tired of streaming. It's like enough already. I want to just sit and be bored and look at the birds and look at people. Well, and- you know,
0: and it's not just Instagram and social media. I'm watching a movie the other day in the theater, and I get a text message from somebody who I had had coffee with, and they were just somebody in town, friend of a friend, interesting, very interesting person. Had coffee with, and then I get a text message saying, "Hey, I'm going to be in town. Do you want to hang out?" In the old days. I would have met that person, we'd had coffee, we'd have gone our own ways, I'd have helped them for five minutes, and now there's a relationship expected, which which is fine. I mean, I I actually I (laughs) I would love to be friends with that person. The only problem is at some point I gotta say, honey, I love our family, but I can't because I gotta have coffee with 250 strangers, you know, in a row. The old days, you didn't have those kinds of dilemmas. And now we are all spread an inch thick. It's not helpful. I have to make a connection between The raise in depression, the raise in anxiety, the unbelievable rise in suicide, and this whole idea of we don't do deep relationships anymore, and I think this is just a huge part of it. So the idea of turning off your smartphone, I think, is good for just your mental health. The subtitle of your book talks about not having rules. So here we are, principle number three. I want to read this from page 63 of your book. The fewer choices people have, the fewer chances to make a decision, the more they'll think it's your company and not their company. Are all the rules and the process that we're creating stealing a sense and a feeling and a truth of ownership from our people?
2: Well, yes, and I want to share a story. I mean, this is where the whole book kind of came from. It was a story that was sitting with me for 20 years and kind of proves this point about uh, rules getting in the way of choice. And when that happens, we lose engagement. I was 30 years old. I had sold my small training company to a bigger company. And contractually, I had to stay there, report to the CEO, be a partner for like one year. Yeah. Now, of course, the CEO is hoping I stay beyond that. So he's trying to engage me and he says, Kevin, just because I'm the CEO and I'm your boss, don't think of it like that. We're equals, we're partners. Right. We're gonna build this company together. All right, great, I'm all in. 30 days, 30 days there, I open up my expense check and it was short by about $4. Not a lot of money, but I thought maybe I filled out the form wrong. So I email the CFO and he responds and he says, we deducted your post-it notes. You're not allowed to submit post-it notes for (laughs) reimbursement. So I say, why? One line email. Why? (laughs) Email's back. Wasteful expense. And so in this moment where this rule, which nobody had told me about, I'm not allowed to reimburse for post-it notes. How much of a VP did I feel like? How much of a partner did I feel like? How much of of an owner, right? You know, I ended up going to the CEO to say, what the heck, right? And to his credit, he immediately said, "Kevin, I didn't know that was bumming people out. All right, that rule's gone. That rule's completely gone." But he said, "Let me just explain. He says I don't care about post-it notes. He said one of our values is profitability, and that sounds like a funny value, company value to no, have." No, I but, mean
0: it's yeah. Without it, you're going down.
2: Yeah, he said, "Look, it's the purpose of life isn't to breathe, but you need to breathe to live, right?" So <laughs> that was a value. And he said, I would walk around the office and people would have these post-it notes and they'd be doodling on them. They'd be taking phone messages. He said, you know what I do, what I write on? And he pulls out this raggedy stack of paper. It was the printer paper that instead of recycling, he would tear it twice. So he had these squares of paper that on his desk that he would write on. And he said, using these scrap paper and banning post notes, it was a sign of being frugal. It was a reminder that every dollar counts. So he abolished that rule. And I ended up staying in that company for five years, long beyond my earnout. And I never tried to reimburse for post-it notes, but it's because we had a conversation about it. It was anchored in values. It was an explanation about guardrails. Like, Hey, we don't want to spend money on wasteful things. So like, here's normal office. It all made sense. And so, you know, Netflix is kind of famous for this. They say, look, you have complete freedom But also accountability.
0: So that's really great.
2: And it's not about like we don't care. It's that, hey, we're going to, first of all, you got to hire really, really, really good people. And then when they mess up, that's a coachable moment. That's a time for effective feedback. Give guardrails based on values, not these black and white rules. What people really freak out about is I go further and I say, like, parents shouldn't have rules for their kids, like, no curfews. You say that in the book. Yeah, right. I've got three teens and I might be lucky. I'm going to knock on wood here. You know, they're all great kids. But people misunderstand. It's not that like I don't care what my kids are doing, but I remember being young and seeing my dad fight with my sisters, my older sisters about curfew. And what a curfew is supposed to be about like having your kids home at a reasonable hour so they're safe, right? You know where your, your kids are. But it became a power thing where they would show up five minutes past curfew. My dad would be mad because basically it was a lack of respect. And you know his curfew, his rules told them It's his house, it's his family, it's not theirs. And things derailed pretty badly for them for a few years. And so with my kids, if it's a Saturday night, it's not like I don't care, it's like they say, dad, there's a big party going on at the, you know, some high school friends or college friends, whatever it is now, how late can I stay out? And I say, well, listen, you know that I love you so much. I'm not going to be able to fall asleep until you're home because I'm going to be worried about you. Right. I want you to be home safe. And also remember your brother's big basketball game is in the morning. I got to get up early and get him to basketball. So you tell me what time do you want to come home? And then they say something like sheepishly like uh, 11 o'clock. And I'm thinking, wow, I would have let him stay out till 12 or one. <laughs> you know? They've always picked a, a date or a time that was like yeah. more on my side than theirs. When you have a no rules culture, whether it's at home or at work, it's not that you don't care. If anything, it's harder because you need to recruit people that are going to be on board with your values. In onboarding, you need to talk about guardrails. You need to have that courageous conversation of like, hey, you know what, Donald, when you did that thing the other day, yeah, it's kind of out of our norms here. Yeah. So it's harder to live that way, but that's how you'll get people to feel engaged. You're, you're co-creating the culture
0: and the experience. You know, it's interesting. I This is a similar journey, and I, I'm not sure you know, what your background is, but I grew up kind of in an evangelical tradition and certainly am, am still a man of faith. This sounds like the evolution of my faith. I mean, I grew up in a very conservative Southern Baptist church that was about rules. I mean, it was very clear. These are rules. And it was indeed a controlling environment, you know, in psychological terms. As I got older, I really didn't have that kind of interaction with God as I got healthier. And I would literally say, what's the rule on this, God? And he would go, you know, use your judgment here. Don't be an idiot. (laughs) Don't don't hurt anybody. Don't hurt yourself. (laughs) Figure it out. I don't have a rule on that one. Stop. And I'm going to micromanage it. It was empowering. Yes. And what you're really talking about is empowering your people, empowering your family, teaching people to make great decisions. The less money you make, the more rules you have to follow. That's just a truth in life. If you're working at McDonald's, there are rules. There are rules to when you flip the burger, how much you put in the drink, because we can't trust you to think. And so, you know, if you want to run a fast food place, that's great. But I love that idea, replacing rules with standards and values. Okay, here's one. Number four, be likable, not liked. Are we too much people pleasers? This
2: continues to be my number one challenge as a leader. And I was such a people pleaser. I craved external validation, especially in my twenties when I was kind of young and dumb in the leadership role. Actually, it's funny. I felt really badly about like how flawed I am in this area. And then I had a chance to talk to John Maxwell recently and he said, this was his number one flaw. Marshall Goldsmith said this was his number one flaw. It's actually easy to be the popular boss, the boss that everybody likes. You just be nice. You take their side rather than the company's side. What's happening though is, At a certain sense, you have to just own that being a friend and being a leader is a very different thing. You know, friends are there for unconditional support and all that other stuff. As a leader, you do have to make tough decisions. By definition, a tough decision is where there's no one obvious decision. There's going to be people that get the corner office or don't or get the promotion or don't or whatever it might be. And I think like be likable means like don't be a jerk. There's no reason to be mean or aloof or anything like that. But be detached from whether you are actually liked or not. And for myself, again, it's still something I battle with, but I try to remind myself that, listen, instead of leading in a way that gets other people's approval, I need to lead in a way that's true to my values, core to my approval. And the reality is that my team members, they got plenty of friends outside of work. They don't need me to be their friend. They need me to be their coach. They need me to give them advice and feedback to make them better in their career. They need me to preserve the company and to make it thrive. But friend is pretty far down on the list. So, I mean, I hope they like me, but like the need to be liked is now, you know, washed away. And I think, you know, a lot of people get that wrong with this idea of like, oh, we don't need bosses. Everybody's an equal. It doesn't work that way.
0: And nobody wants that. They say they want that and they get into a situation where like, okay, I actually need you to lead. And you can't teach anybody to lead if you're just going to act like their friend all the time, and the world needs leaders. I think this one is interesting because there was a temptation sort of early on in my career. I probably spent a year too long trying not to ruffle feathers and trying to be liked and trying to sort of get everybody to approve of me. I realized this is going to cost you money, and this is going to cost you influence, and this is going to cost you impact. I wonder if this very issue that you're talking about isn't holding a ton of our listeners back. The reality is if you run a company and if you scale up the company and if you get more employees and if you have way more customers, you are going to get critics. You are going to get people who it's a major lesson to be able to turn the other cheek and keep going and keep moving toward your goals. It's huge. I like the way you phrased it, be likable, not liked. My wife and I literally just had this conversation. Mm. We had to have a conversation saying, is this worth it? Is it worth it to grow a company? Is it worth it? And the number one thing was they're going to be People, when you make a tough decision, who immediately turn you into a villain. Yeah. And it was a really tough conversation. But, you know, I kind of said, look, if if we're going to help a million people or whatever we want to do, we got to pass through this journey or else we got to shut the business down. And, You know, of course, it was a tough night, but she was like, I'm all in.
2: Before we move off that, so there was a book I read, I guess it was last year, might be familiar with the courage to be disliked. And Mm -hmm. it was a sort of a similar thing saying, look, if you are actually going to make a difference or to make change, there will be a subset of that bell curve that will dislike the change will dislike the decision. And again, this is tough. Every book I write, has gotten better because I've shared more of my real experience and feelings, you know, in the book and I still struggle with it. I mean, you know, my father will read this book and he'll hear that what I thought of his parenting methods, you know, back with curfews and <laughs> fights and all this other stuff. Yeah. That's a little triggering for me even now as a 52-year-old <laughs> guy, right? And yet, I come back to exactly what you said. Am I going to live a life, write a book, build a company, that is safe and doesn't offend my family members and friends from college and my neighbors? Or am I going to do it the right way and help more people?
0: And hopefully that's the direction we're all leaning in. Well, you know, as long as we're being likable and not liked, your fifth idea here is lead with love. And so regardless of whether anybody likes you, you're calling us out. We've got to love them regardless of whether they like us or not. You love each team member as an individual, an individual who has a life outside of work, not as a soulless cog in your production machine. Page 101. Talk to me about the power of love in, in the workplace.
2: Again, it's so crazy because it's not even whether they like you. It's whether even if you don't like them, you can still love them. And yeah. that's kind of a, a big aha to me. We're talking about like a love of humankind. The Greeks called it agape, as an example, companionate love. You know, it's a caring for other people. And so, I think it was Coach Wooden that would start every year and say to his players, look, I'm not going to like you all the same, but I will love you all the same. Yeah, And that really, you know, speaks a lot to me in more practically, as I do work with employee engagement and look at the surveys and the research, one of the most common complaints that people have about their boss are things like. I've been working here 10 years and he's never said good morning in the Mm -hmm. morning. Mm -hmm. He's never asked me about my weekend on Monday. He walks past me down the hall and never makes eye contact. And I used to be like, again, leaders who do that, it's not that we're trying to be rude. It's not that we don't care about other people, but we're in task mode, right? We're so right. task-oriented, drivers, achievement-oriented. And I used to be that boss, jogging down the hall to the next you know, meeting and thinking about my to-do list and stressing out. I literally would not see people coming by me. I never knew, I mean, for years, I never knew that they are looking at me and like, what a jerk, right? Yeah. Like he doesn't even smile yeah. and say hi or good morning. And so this lead with love is like, look, You cannot forget about the people side of leadership. There's the task, get stuff done side, but the people side, sometimes you can express caring in those little things. Do you know the names of their kids? Do you know the names of their spouse or partner? Are you asking about them on a personal level? And it doesn't come naturally to me, but to like slow our lives down enough to show that we care, you'll get huge
0: dividends. I'll be back with the rest of my interview with Kevin Cruz in just a moment. If you've not gone to businessmadesimple.com yet, I want you to go right away. We've got thousands and thousands, I think more than 20,000 people have signed up. They get a daily video from me, about three to five minute video every weekday morning, and it just has a business tip. I just recorded one, for instance, on how to ask for a raise. For instance, if you've just made the company a ton of money, it is the absolute wrong time to ask for a raise and you think it is, right? You just made them a ton of money, so it's a great time to ask for a raise. Your employer sees that money as money they got as a return on the investment in you. In other words, they invested in you and they made a big return. Here's when you want to ask for a raise. You actually want to sit down and say, here's my plan to make you more money in the future, I'd like a raise. In other words, ask for the raise based on future money that you're going to make the company, not money that you have already made because your investor sees you as dipping into their bank account rather than taking a percentage of the future. Use the past money that you've made the company as a way to earn trust and that you can earn them more. So whenever you ask for a raise, always sit down and say, here's my plan to make you a ton of money I would like a raise rather than here's what I did to already make you a ton of money. I would like a raise. They're perceived two different ways. You're going to get a much bigger raise if you ask for it the second way. It's those kinds of tips every weekday morning. Just go to businessmadesimple.com. It's completely free. I'm going to skip ahead. This is so good, but we're going to skip ahead. If you want to read the book, it's called Great Leaders Have No Rules. Grab it today. But let's actually go. We're going contrasting here. Be likable, not liked, but lead with love, but still play favorites is an idea in the book. <laughs> you recommend to leaders that they play favorites. What do you mean by that? And
2: again, old school wisdom, what I was taught you know, a long time ago, it's like, hey, you got to treat everybody the same so they don't think you're unfair. Right. It turns out the most unfair thing you could do would be to treat everybody the same. Why should your high performer be treated the same and make the same pay and have the same opportunities as your lowest performers? Why should you invest your time in them the same? Great leaders individualize their leadership. Now, playing favorites is different than favoritism. We're not talking about cronyism where, you know, you promote someone because they play golf with you or they were in your fraternity or sorority or whatever that is. It's about understanding who your top performers are and what their strengths are and giving them opportunities and time to make them even better. It sounds Harsh, but your low performers should actually get less of your time because you'll get lower returns. You can't have 90% of your leadership time going to the bottom 10% yeah. on your team, which a lot of people do. Oh, I got to invest. I got two people that are behind their sales quota. I got to coach them up to quota. No, 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 You don't ignore them. You do your normal management and coaching, but you over invest in your high performers. And it really just comes down to understanding the drivers, the strengths of each team member and individualizing it. No team member should be like beyond, I don't wanna say rules, but beyond the standards. Everybody should still have to show up on time and do all those normal standards that are agreed upon. But you wouldn't say the consequence for someone who comes in late for the first time after being on time for 10 years, well, that consequence should be different than someone who's shown up late five days right. in a row right. on their second week on the job. Yeah. So, you know, it's easy to kind of have these rules and to treat everybody the same. That's like lazy leadership. You just follow the rule book, you know, the follow the recipe. It's actually harder to think about the context, think about the person, and then to individualize it.
0: What do you think of this idea of giving the team that finishes ninth in the soccer tournament a trophy also? The only team members we've ever had kind of issues with, and issues as is a strong word. We've really never had issues with any of our teamers, but there was a sense of entitlement. You know, we'd say, hey, I don't know that this is really a good job. That was extremely difficult for them to hear and even left the company because they just weren't going to hear any other message than you are uniquely special and amazing and we are lucky to have you. Rather than learning and developing, and I love this competitive environment. It can get Darwinian if you go the you know Enron route, and sure. what they did over there, but you're just talking about creating a healthy environment where everybody is sort of challenging each other in a healthy, more or less socially gamified role. And I would also want to point out, you're saying you really are going to, want to be drawn to certain people more than others. There's two ways to hear that. One is that people are going to get really affirmed for doing great work. The other is that you're going to punish people and be mean to them for doing <laughs> bad work, which is not what you're saying. Correct. <laughs> you're, you're just saying, naturally, it's going to go this way. I love it. Now, this is crazy, and you got to tell me what you're thinking here, but it's in line with the same idea. It's kind of the, the eighth idea that you saw in your book, reveal everything. Even salaries, you literally tell the entire team what everybody else is making.
2: And that story originally came from, it was similar 20 years ago. I show up at work. My assistant at the time said, Hey, did you see the email? I said, what email? And she said, someone in finance just sent the entire company's salary. We had 500 employees in the company. At the oh time. my God! Just sent the entire oh spreadsheet of salaries to every employee <laughs> in the company, followed by an email from the COO that says,
0: "Don't open that email." Which of course <laughs> everybody open it. opens. It's like I quick. would open that email. <laughs> so um, I'm forwarding that email to all my friends. Are you kidding me? That's right.
2: So here's the thing. We know that transparency drives trust, which drives engagement. Transparency drives decision-making, right? The old school, again, it was like information flowed up so that the decisions could flow down. Today's world, we know it's all about decentralized teams and speed and collaboration. So you want the information to flow down so everybody's got all, you know it's transparent, all the real information so the decisions can be made quote unquote down and quickly. And with the salaries, even if you don't actually share salaries, you should be willing to do so. You should never fear that spreadsheet going through your organization because here's why. If you have some fear of it, it might be because you haven't thought through how you are compensating people. In this day and age, again, times have changed, most people can just jump on payscale or salary.com, type in their title and city, and get a pretty good idea of whether they're, you know, in line with right. normal compensation or not. It seems like culturally, the 20-something year olds, they're telling each other their salaries like it's, you know, like, hey, what'd you have for breakfast today? Yeah. So whether it's the internet information or the friends, they kind of know. The other thing to realize also is in any public servant, whether it's federal government workers, in states, most school teachers, all of those salaries, military, it's all public information. Everybody knows what everybody's making. It's not a problem. What I would recommend specifically, I think some of the tech companies are doing it right. They're saying, look, you know, we're not gonna say Jane makes X dollars and Joe makes Y dollars. What they are gonna say is on their website, they're gonna say, okay, this is our pay formula. Take the title go to pay scale and look at 75% of the standard for pay scale. Then we're going to go up or down 10% based on cost of living where you live and $5,000 more if you have a master's degree. And it's just sort of thought out. And it doesn't mean – Two people with the exact same title will make the exact same, because again, location or whatever it is, someone might've chosen some stock options instead of you know the, the cash, but it's gonna be close and everybody can feel like there's a sense of fairness. And I right. do think, especially with all of the gender inequality issues going on, mm-hmm. and this is, again, the way I was raised is like, hey, you're hiring a candidate. You don't say, this is what we're offering. You say, hey, what are you making now? And then you go back and you think, oh, wow, they're making 50 grand, I was gonna pay 70, but I bet I could get them for 55 or 60. And then you get them in, because that's a big bump to them, and now they're on that inflation raise or whatever it is, and someone else answers that question 70, maybe they are at 70, and then the same role, you're like, but it perpetuates. We need to have thought through, how are we paying for different roles? What's it worth? You know, Is it in line with market or not? Why? And then you know, let's just get everybody at that level rather than what level they were making somewhere else.
0: We're not super private about salaries around here. They change so much because you know there's so many people on commission and those kinds of things. And I often don't know what people are making. One of the things that I just calculate is, does this position make the company money? In other words, is this a finance? Because I, you know, one of the things we say to all our employees is, you are an economic investment. Give a great return on your investment. I just saw a quote from Peyton Manning the other day. They said, what was going through your head the 1st multi multi-million dollar paycheck that you got when you went into the draft, when in the NFL? And he said, one thing was going through my head. This is an investment. You better get your boss a return. And Love I go, it. that guy, I don't care what he does, he's going to be rich. And even the owner of the company, Kevin has to view themselves that way. If somebody pays me money to buy my product, I'm a business-to-business-business. I better get them a return. I'm under the most pressure of anybody. You've got to get a return. And so what I like in our company is you see some admin roles, and they're going, ooh, you know, an admin role is super important. It's keeping this machine going. But if I step over here, I have a direct effect on making this company money, and it's going to be reflected in my salary. I kind of like this idea of not just saying – our salaries are just and fair, but being able to explain your view of just and fair. That's right. If you own a piece of this company and are creating money for the company, you're going to make more money than somebody who isn't in a position like that. That may be fair. That may be not fair. I don't know. But that's exactly how the world works. I think kids coming out of college, it's a really great chance to teach them, if you make people money, you're always going to get a cut. If you help somebody make somebody money, you're going to get a much lesser cut. So you got to pick your position and your career path accordingly.
2: What I often say is, you know, I try to say to my kids and others, you know, life is about making an impact, not making an income. And people will sometimes say, "Oh yeah, try paying the rent with with impact." And I said, "No, no, no. You, the second part is the more of an yeah. impact you make, the more value you provide, the more I try making income money and without making an impact." Right?
0: Yeah, I mean, exactly <laughs> right. That's exactly right. All right. The final thought here in your book show weakness. I don't even want to preach on this because man, I'm just a firm believer. And I don't know if culture has changed or we have changed or we've gotten more soft, but just this idea of never admitting you're wrong. Is deteriorating entire cultures and communities.
2: I like the way you phrase that. I mean, it's just destructive. But the old school wisdom was like, hey, you know, I'm a boss now. I can't show emotion and it's about power and authority. So I'm not going to admit that I don't know the answer. I'm not going to admit that I was wrong or that I've ever messed up. We're in a different economy now. And so when you admit that you've made mistakes and you're going to make more mistakes well then people are more likely to share and earlier when they've made a mistake or something's yeah. going you know wrong on a project it drives psychological safety which also drives innovation and if anything we're now in a world for better or for worse it is true that authenticity sells. Authenticity matters. I hesitate to bring this up to the master storyteller himself. What I've learned a lot in business, and whether it's your own career, your own business, positioning myself using a hero's journey story. If I'm doing a speech and I take the stage and I start by talking about all my success and how great I am and all the things I've done, oddly enough, it might build a little credibility, but it puts huge distance between me and the audience. Absolutely. they, They tune out. If instead I talk about My first two bankruptcies or the time my wife left me, all these other struggles that I had to sort of overcome and and how I did it and what I learned along the way. Man, they're hanging on every word and they seem to like me more. The power of of storytelling. I mean, I have probably I don't know. I've got 10 books on. I've read McKee a million times. Yeah. And even this morning, I'm not making this up. I didn't do it just because I was coming on your show. I've got a sales deck, sales presentation deck that we started in January. It's now on version 13. Every week I'm updating it. Are you familiar with, they call it like the greatest sales deck ever made from Zora? That, I haven't, no, no, I'm not, no. Nah. Okay, so there's this deck, if you Google that, it comes up and they talk about this tech company called Z-U-O-R-A, Zora. And it follows uh, like a big shift that's happening, tells a little story, but it's subtle. It's very subtle. And I was being inspired by that. And finally this morning, I'm like, I'm not gonna be subtle. I'm gonna make this a story structure. And so I've yes. got slide two, it says the world today. And I talk about what's wrong with leadership development. And then I say the number one enemy in its time. We only have 24 yes, minutes a week the to villain. learn. Yeah, right. And then I talk about the fact that we created this thing with IBM Watson and that's like we've created the magic wand or the weapon or whatever it is and that here's what your people need, you know, and I'm putting the, hopefully the buyer, you know, as the hero, but I'm not even being subtle about it. I'm saying world today, you know, the danger, the enemy, here's the magic wand, the tool, the treasure chest that you need. Here's what your new world will look like when you do this. I'm just putting it right in the slides now. Like it is so powerful. Yep. And whether we're telling that story about ourselves in a job interview, whether we're telling it to our customers or whatever that is, I mean, that hero's journey, it's a reluctant hero. If you're going to be the hero, you got to be modest and talk about your journey. But to your point, and what you've always told me is, look, you don't want to be the hero yourself.
0: No. You want to be the coach, the guide. That- the guide. And and here's the thing. The guide almost has a backstory of pain. They have almost always struggled with whatever that audience is struggling with, but they've gotten through it. And now they have this tool that can help you get through it too. That sharing of your weakness is a critical element of story structure if you want to engage an audience from the guide's perspective. Do you remember Mr. Miyagi in uh, Karate Kid? Of course. Getting drunk one night and thinking about his lost wife and thinking it's the backstory of pain from the guide that draws us in. It gives empathy and connection with the audience, here's what's gonna happen based on about 300 people telling me what you just told me. That is, they took their sales deck and ran it through a story structure, and preferably story brand story structure. Your sales are going to explode. I just had a a friend call me the other day. He was competing with somebody for a deal at NBC. The night before he goes, okay, I'm just gonna rewrite this. I can't even, don't even have time to do my keynote. I'm literally just gonna structure it and do it from the hip using this story structure. Got a $3 million deal, couldn't finish his presentation. Awesome. The CEO just said, Hold on, I don't even want to hear anybody else. This has been a really boring morning. You got the deal. And, and he just said, Because, it, and the only reason is he's the only one who made sense. You're going to have 300 people asking you for a copy of his sales deck. <laughs> he didn't even use a sales deck, he used a napkin. <laughs> It's a story there for crying go. out loud.
2: That's a great thing. You can tell the story without slides. Right?
0: When you know yeah. your real story. Oh, well, Sales Deck just makes it better. Slides just yeah. make it better. Kevin, this has been a wonderful conversation. The book is Great Leaders Have No Rules Contrarian Leadership Principles to Transform Your Team and business it's available now on amazon or wherever you buy books will you come back next time you write a book which in your pace is going to be what three months from now this one hurt me my friend (laughs) i think i'm taking some time off (laughs) (laughs) that's a weakness you and i have in common (laughs) kevin great conversation thanks for coming on thanks for having me so no rules jj
1: (laughs) No rules, turns out none, zero, (laughs) (laughs) none at all. Turns out there's rules about having no rules, but no rules, no rules.
0: That's exactly there's, it's always that way. The metaphor breaks down at some point. (laughs) Kevin did a great job, a lot to think about there, and seriously, creativity and whatever rules it'll kill it. Yep, and my gosh, our country is so full of freaking rules anyway music from this episode is by andrew bell you can listen to andrew's latest record dive deep hushed on spotify or on itunes thanks as always for listening to the building a story brand podcast where we believe if you confuse you'll lose noise is the enemy and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business